no, um, uh, no teaching, no writing projects. And I had some ideas about movies and uh, TV. And so I started sketching those out and wrote up a draft of something, circulated with some friends who said, hey, Hibbs, this isn't too bad. And maybe you ought to work on it. So I kept working on it. And that became the first book that I wrote on a film called Shows About Nothing, which Spence Publishing published uh, in about 2000. And then in about 2010, I expanded and updated it. It might need a new one uh, coming up soon from Baylor University Press. But one of the things I was interested in, in writing about film and then teaching philosophy and film at schools I've been at is it was really, I had my students in mind and when I was at Boston College, very good students, very bright. We had about 300 philosophy majors, which for that size of a university was an astonishing number. I think the most in the country for a university of that size uh, at the time. And the students were bright and, uh, and interested in the subject matter. But I noticed that they didn't do much by way of reflection to make connection between what we were studying in class and what they were doing outside of class. And even back then, much more so today, their lives outside of class uh, were lives consumed by images and sound. And that's much more true today than it was then. We all live much more on screens uh, than any generation of human beings ever has in history. It only became possible to do this very recently. And, uh, and I was interested in the way very reflective students in class would be very unreflective about their viewing habits. And so one of the things I wanted to do, in fact, one of my great achievements the first time I taught uh, a large, I had 110 students in a class at Boston College on uh, nihilism in uh, film and philosophy. And I had a student come up to me at the end of the semester who said that I had ruined her ability to simply sit in front of the TV and veg out. And, and I don't have anything, I do it myself. I mean, I watch sports or whatever, but I, I, I thought that was kind of an achievement that the student now was thinking about the plots and how image and sound were working on her in ways she had not been aware of before. And so I thought that was something of an achievement. And I think we need to learn, particularly as Catholics, we need to learn to be discerning viewers. We have an enormously rich artistic tradition which is woefully misunderstood and we're completely ignorant of it in most cases. And we have a tradition of thinking about and liturgically embodying the role of images in our midst. And the title tonight, I think this really is the best way to come at the issue. And I'm gonna give you, that. this is, don't quote me on this or put it in a scholarly article because it's gonna be a little rough and ready for our conversation tonight, but, I wanna talk at the beginning a little bit about Icon and Idol, and then I, I wanna have Russell show a clip from the Hunger Games, and then we'll move on from that. But the difference between an Icon and an Idol, and I get this uh, sort of roughly from, it's a kind of translation of some work of the, the French Catholic philosopher, Jean-Luc Marion, but the Idol, uh, the idol is, um, is what we experience in the Idol is proportionate to the desire that we bring to the idol. So the desires that we want to have satisfied, we go and find an idol and it satisfies them. For Marion, this is a consumerist conception of desire, right? I have desires that I want satisfied 
and I find some way to purchase something that satisfies those desires. The icon, by contrast, if we continue to engage with us, first of all, it fails to fulfill what we want in our antecedent desires when we come to the image. There's something about it that causes our desires to be caught up short. And if the icon works on us in the appropriate way, the icon will transform our desire in the process of our contemplating the icon. Another way to put this is that in, and this is not quite true for film, but in, a, in, in an authentic iconic experience versus an idolatrous experience, with an idolatrous experience, the idol is an object of typically of my vision. In an encounter with an icon, I am seen as well as seeing, right? And in fact, if I'm just looking, thinking that I have an objective gaze, to put it philosophically, on the object, with an idol, that's fine. But with an icon, the icon is looking back at me in a way that engages me and forces me to reflect upon the desires that I have brought to this encounter and suggests that there's more present than can actually be physically seen and that there is a command or demand of me that I go away different than I came in before encountering the icon. So the idol is proportionate to the desire I bring. The icon transforms desire. The idol is a consumerist relationship. The icon is personal and transcendent. So that I'm opening up into deeper layers of reality in the encounter with an icon. And I think this is true analogously of any kind of serious art. So Russell, why don't you play the clip? Um, and it, it starts with a, about 18 seconds of just intro stuff, but play this short clip from The Hunger Games if you can. I think it's our tradition. It comes out of a particularly painful part of our history. Yes. But it's been the way we've been able to heal. At first, it was a reminder of the rebellion. It was a price the districts had to pay. But I think it has grown from that. I think it's, uh, it's something that knits us all together. This is your third year as game maker. What, what defines the... your personal signature? No! No! Shh. Shh. It's okay. It's okay. You're just dreaming. You're dreaming. It was me. Yeah. You know, but it's not. It's your first year playing the game's only been in there once. They're not going to pick you.
I'll still cook you. Thanks. So um, that's, this is the opening, uh, one of the opening scenes from The Hunger Games. Suzanne Collins, when uh, she was writing the books, said that she got the idea for The Hunger Games when she was flipping the TV back in the 90s and flipped from a reality TV show to scenes of the Iraq war. And she was thinking about the ease with which we move in our encounter with images from innocuous images, entertaining images, to images of horror and violence, which barely register differently in our soul. That, that is that much of the time, the only thing it registers is what what I call CNN compassion, right? It's, it's when you flip on CNN and see something awful happening somewhere in the world and you think, oh, that's bad. And then you flip to the game or something more horrifying like the Kardashians or something like that. And, uh, but the, the, the way in which we're attuned to be emotionally indifferent. Now, what's going on in the Hunger Games and you have the, the sort of centralized authority, very artificial. And then you have the, the life in the districts, which is quite natural and, um, and barren, really, of Katniss and her sister. But what's going on in the Hunger Games is that you have a society that organizes regular games, contests, between representatives chosen by lot from these various districts who had in the past rebelled against the centralized power. And this is a way of teaching them a lesson that they will have these contests. The peculiar thing about these contests is that these are contests between young people who are left alone to brutally murder one another in a survival of the fittest contest. Now we hear in the very opening that these contests and the watching of them binds the society together. It's a ritual that binds the society together. But what the book and then especially the film, because it's more about watching than it is about reading. What the film is asking us is why are in the opening, implicitly it's asking us, why are we watching this movie? What is it that is drawing us as viewers to a movie that features a competitive game to the death between innocent young people? What is it that would make us desire this? What are we after in the watching of violence? Is there a way in which our watching of violence, either war or in other contexts, actually does, in some sense, bind us together? And more deeply, how could we possibly find this entertaining? So 
one of the things, and I don't think that the book or the films are great art. Uh, they're they're decent. Uh, um, they're they're moderately well put together, popular books and films. But they are asking us to reflect upon the conditions of watching. And this is something we don't often do. And to think about the difference between an idol and an icon is to think not only about the object, but the conditions of watching. And The Hunger Games is asking us, now of course, not long into The Hunger Games, we actually have someone to root for who does not simply want to murder other young people, but wants to subvert this evil system, right? So it's not as if we watch the whole thing through and we're just watching the arbitrary killing of young people. But when it starts out, that's what we're going to be watching. And if we don't ask ourselves the question that the film and its opening scenes is implicitly asking us to ask, we are mindlessly taking in violence without asking what is motivating us to watch this? And is it a healthy motive? Great art, much more than The Hunger Games, is always attentive to the conditions under which we engage with it. All the great poets are pushing us at certain points back on ourselves to say, what's your motive in reading this poetry? Great Catholic poets in particular, from Dante to Eliot. But even a great filmmaker, a great popular filmmaker like Hitchcock could, could do a great series on Hitchcock and particularly one of his great Catholic films, I confess, about a falsely accused priest. Hitchcock's films, if you watch them, there's great dialogue, but Hitchcock is not interested in the dialogue. He's got other people supplying that for him. What Hitchcock is interested in, and his camera moves from a face to what it sees back to the reaction registered in the face. It is about seeing and being transformed and affected by what you see. And of course, this is precisely what is going on when we watch film. We are looking at things that have an impact on us, much in the way Hitchcock's characters are looking at things and then he looks back at the faces. All of his films are structured this way. The most important scenes, the face, what it sees, the reaction, love, horror, hatred, fear, whatever it might be. You don't even need words to appreciate a Hitchcock film because it's all about the face and what it sees and how it's impacted. Great art is asking us to reflect upon what we're looking at it, what we're looking at and the conditions of our looking and how we're affected by what we see. Great art like icons, turns us back on ourselves and asks us to reflect on what we're after in the encounter with an image. In the idol, we are not being asked to reflect back on ourselves except to register complete satisfaction or frustration with the image. And if we're frustrated, we move on to another image. Also with the idol, the idol does not open up to transcendence. It captures us and leaves us at that level. Right? It seeks to control our imagination and keep us addicted 
to the images or similar images akin to it that we can encounter by pushing the next button. We are, as I mentioned, John Luc Marion said earlier, we are like customers with the idol. It's also the case with the idol that we can conjure it, right? If you think back to the Exodus and the burning bush and Moses encountering Yahweh, who shall I say sent me? Tell them I am who am sends you. Well, that's a way of God saying, I will not be named, right? Because in the Egyptian world, to name something is to be able to control and conjure it. This is not a divinity that can be adequately captured in human language, human concepts, and it is certainly not a divinity that can be conjured to do tricks for human beings, right? This is connected in our experience to the intimate relationship between technology, the, the status of technology as a kind of magic. Tolkien has a great description, where he a, a great passage in one of his letters, where he says that magic and technology are after the same thing. They both aim to reduce to the vanishing point the gap between I want it and it appears. That's what magic does. That's what technology does, right? I take this little phone of mine and I push a button and it appears, the image appears. Or I push another button and 15 minutes later, Amazon shows up my, at my door with a book or food shows up. The gap between I want it and it appears. Think about light. You turn on, we go into a room, we turn on a light switch to get light. If you're in Harry Potter, you take out your wand, right? And you say Lumos and the light appears. Magic and technology. And Tolkien would want us to reflect upon the, the fact that part of our obsession, addiction with technology is not just about science and efficiency. It's about our falling prey to a certain kind of magic, a certain kind of instantaneity, a certain ability that we have in our will to control external reality through technology. The other thing that technology does to us, that idolatry does to us, or I should say an idolatrous use of technology, because technology can be used virtuously, is it deprives us of any deep ability to see, to hear, or to speak. The icon, by opening us up into mystery, invites us to greater attentiveness visually, to a deeper silent listening, and to a speech that attempts slowly, deliberately to articulate the mysteries in our presence. Think of these lines from Psalm 115. Our God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases. But their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but cannot speak, eyes, but cannot see, ears, but cannot hear, noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel, feet, but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. 
Those who make them will come to be like them. And so will all who trust in them. That's a, that is perhaps one of the most succinct scriptural descriptions of the effect of idols on our, not just on our souls, but on our senses. It renders us blind, deaf, and unable to speak. One of the biggest problems in our culture, which has to, there are lots of things about this, right? I mean, I think we all would say that our political vocabulary, uh, our political discourse is pretty much in the tank. I mean, we had debates. Do we have more than one? I can't even remember last time around, but nobody could even, even put forth a memorable soundbite, let alone a decent five sentence description of something that a candidate is in favor of. We have an impoverished language, especially when it comes to the most important things in human life, death, suffering, evil, virtue, happiness, success, failure. One of the things that is going on in almost any story that you watch, even just a sitcom, is that there are implicit assumptions in films and in television shows about what counts as success and what counts as failure, what counts as happiness and what counts as misery, what it's appropriate for us to mourn over if there is any mourning, what it's appropriate for us to laugh at and what must not be laughed at, right? If you want to know what the, um, the principles, the values, I don't necessarily like that word values, but are in a worldview or in a simple TV story or film, try and figure out what the film is indicating you ought to laugh at or not laugh at what you ought to take seriously and what you ought not to take seriously. We lack a rich vocabulary for these things. I want, um, Russell, play the clip uh, from, uh, from Batman Begins, if you would, please. Master Wayne. You've been gone a long time. Yes, I have. You look very fashionable. Apart from the mud. Are you coming back to Gotham for long, sir? As long as it takes. I'm going to show the people of Gotham their city doesn't belong to the criminals and the corrupt. In the Depression, your father nearly bankrupted Wayne Enterprises combating poverty. He believed that his example could inspire the wealthy of Gotham to save their city. Did it? In a way, their murder shocked the wealthy and the powerful into action. People need dramatic examples to shake them out of apathy, and I can't do that as Bruce Wayne. As a man, I'm flesh and blood. I can be ignored, I can be destroyed, but as a symbol, as a symbol, I can be incorruptible. I can be everlasting. What symbol? Something elemental, something terrifying. I assume that as you're taking on the underworld, this symbol is a persona to protect those you care about from reprisals. You think about Rachel? 
actually to, I was thinking of myself. Have you told anyone I'm coming back? Well, I just couldn't figure the legal ramifications of bringing you back from the dead. Dead? You've been gone seven years. You have me declared dead? Well, actually, it was Mr. Earl. He's taken the company public. He wanted to liquidate your majority shareholding. Those shares are worth quite a bit of money. Well, it's a good thing I left everything to you, then. Quite so, sir. And you can borrow the rolls if you like. Just bring it back with a full tank. Great, thanks. So here you have, this is this moment in the first film. I think these are great films. I think Christopher Nolan's uh, not always great, but he's got great talent. And uh, this is a moment in the, in the first one where uh, Bruce Wayne realizes that he needs to craft a symbol to inspire people. And he needs to craft a symbol that's gonna counter the evil that has taken over Gotham. The scenes I love after he adopts the Batman persona are in this, are these, all these great scenes of him at the top of these buildings in Gotham, where he looks like a gargoyle on a medieval cathedral. But the difference is that Bruce Wayne is a gargoyle in a godless Gotham. This is a, it's, it's a thought experiment in a way, a sort of worst case scenario. Take a society where apparently divine law has vanished, human law has all but vanished because the system is completely corrupt, and even natural law seems to be eroded. Aquinas says it can be eroded, and the basic principles of the natural law in corrupt societies can be almost eroded. But the interesting thing about the Batman movie is that it says that even in that worst case scenario, the hunger for justice and the hatred of injustice lingers in the human soul. And so Batman's role is to craft a symbol to revive the imagination of the people of Gotham, to begin to give them a story of courage and hope in the face of seemingly overwhelming evil. Many of our best films are, I think, attempts to supply us with a vocabulary, a narrative, so that we can begin to conceive of virtues like courage, friendship, justice, and hope in a way that makes sense in terms of an overall story. Right? And making sense of our lives in terms of an overall story is crucial for us to have any sense of hope and purpose in life and images that open us up into deeper realms of meaning, analogous to icons, don't just leave us with what might be the cynical, materialistic antecedent desires that we come to the film with. I think Batman Begins is one of those examples of acknowledging the hunger for a vocabulary, for stories, for examples. The other part of this that I've mentioned with icons in art is that the icon opens us to the transcendent. We can debate whether with Batman that happens or not. I think in the sense that 
uh, in this uh, thought experiment were to, where we're to imagine a society where divine law, human law have disappeared and natural law is all but gone, I think that uh, what the films do there is actually push us toward affirming the transcendent reality of justice. How else do we explain the sacrifices of Batman and the sacrifices that those inspire in others to fight against justice? How else do we explain the fact that we agree with Batman that injustice is evil? And we don't think this is just merely a feeling that we have, that this is actually in a judgment about reality. In that sense, a film like this is making implicitly transcendent claims. And yet very often in this film and others, there's no real opening into the transcendent understood as religion or worship. Now I'm not gonna show this clip because I only wanna show one more. I actually have two, but I'm not gonna show this one. Um, there's this pretty interesting, simple film called Gravity, uh, which Sandra Bullock stars in, where she's cast off from a space station floating in outer space and really without hope of making it back to Earth or reconnecting with her space station. There's this great scene, it's really a movie worth watching, where she thinks she's going to die and she's got radio connection to what appears to be from the language, someone in China, but there's no communication going on. And she starts talking to this person she's vaguely connecting with in China and says to this person, will you pray for me? Will anyone pray for me? I don't wanna die up here alone without anyone praying for me. And when I saw that movie, that scene, I thought, you know what, this is astonishing. People pray all the time, yet prayer almost never shows up in contemporary film or television. It didn't even show up a lot in the great classic sitcoms from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. There's not a lot of praying going on in many of those sitcoms uh, that I grew up with and that we thought were really wholesome. They are in lots of ways, but these are not families that are religious. And here in this very contemporary film, Sandra Bullock says, nobody taught me to pray. And now I want to pray, right? Acknowledging the loss in the culture, not just of language, but of rituals that help us to face the most difficult experiences of death, suffering, evil, and loss. It's a striking scene simply because something that's part of the vast majority of even modern citizens, as secular as we are, the experience of praying. I want finally to show and then say just a few words about this clip from this Terrence Malick film, The Tree of Life, um, which, uh, which is a really brilliant film, but like a lot of Malick stuff, it's, it's hard to watch. I think it was famous when it came out for having a reputation in every theater of people walking out during the first 40 minutes of it uh, because they couldn't understand what it was about. But I, if Russell, if you would, uh, if you would play this real quickly, and then I'll say a few words about this, and then we'll take some questions. Man's path us through two ways through life. 
way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. Grace doesn't try to please itself. Accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked. Accepts insults and injuries. only wants to please itself. Get others to please it too. Your loving and faithful service. Likes to lord it over them. Bless these boys. To have its own way. It finds reasons to be unhappy and all the world is shining around it. And love is smiling through all things. Great. We got all three clips in, Russell. Good job. Without any problems. Appreciate that. So a, a couple things about this, and then we'll open it up. So the you heard the opening words, brother, mother, it was they that led me to you. Um, this film shifts um, temporal narrative back and forth. It also mixes dialogue between persons with internal stream of consciousness. And one of the interesting things about the stream of consciousness here is indicated in those opening lines, brother, mother, it was they that led me to you. Who? Who's the object of that? In some cases, and I think there, because we've just had the line from Job that frames the whole film, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Right? The internal monologue or conversation is very frequently directed to God. This is the only film I know that does this. And yet we do it all the time, right? I mean, if we're, if, if we're driving down the road and we see a car come out that we think might sideswipe us, we say in our head, oh my, oh my God, help me, right? If we're thinking about something that we hope will go well or someone we're concerned about, in our head, we are addressing God. The film not only has dialogue that is interrupted by internal consciousness that is addressed upward toward God, it also visually moves from scenes that work like this to scenes that, uh, horizontal scenes, one thing after another, to vertical scenes. Malik is really fond of putting the camera on the ground and having it go directly up through trees to the sun and the clouds above. What's the suggestion there? The suggestion there is that the linear narrative itself, sometimes in, in postmodern narratives, you break up the linear narrative to say that there can't be a coherent narrative. 
It's all incoherent. It makes no sense. You could piece things together in whatever way you want. Malik is breaking up the linear narrative, not for that purpose, but to say that the vertical dimension must be interrupted by and understood in relation to a horizontal dimension that opens up to the transcendent so that there are different levels of action, interpretation, and meaning. Augustine, by the way, in his Confessions does this all the time, right? He says in the middle of book five, you brought me to Rome to save my soul. I thought I was going there because the students I had back in Carthage were obnoxious and wouldn't pay my fees. That's why I moved to Rome. What was operating at the vertical level, the providential level, was something different. Malik's art in this film opens up to the transcendent. The dialogue opens up not just between persons, but up toward God. There's a great line further on where one of the boys says to his mother, tell me a story from before I can remember. It's a beautiful line. He wants to hear stories about when he was born. But the tree of life begins with a creation story of the entire cosmos and then settles in Waco, Texas, which is where this is uh, set because Malik grew up in Waco before he moved to Austin. Uh, and the boy is asking what all of us are asking about. Tell us a story, mom and dad, about my life before I was aware of my life. Tell me the story of my life that I can't tell myself, even in my own family. And then tell me a story, if we follow that through, from before I can remember about where everything came from and my place within it. That's how a, a narrative, a story, a set of images, a set of uh, vocabulary and conversation can open up to the transcendent. Malik is deliberately trying to create art that is iconic, where our language moves up for that which exceeds its grasp, where the storyline is not just about a series of events, but about how we ought to understand that in relation to eternity and where particular human lives on what the great um, Canadian Catholic Thomist, Charles DeConnick called a poor planet born of a catastrophe, right? A poor planet born of a catastrophe. What does that have to do with the whole of creation and the creator? Iconic art opens us up through its vocabulary, through its images, and through its storyline to the transcendent in ways that pull us out of our the desires that we bring to the piece of art and transform them and leave us desiring the invisible and not just the visible. Let me stop there.